0: Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, humbly, that you would have your way here tonight, that this time we've set aside for you would be, that each one of us would hear something that would be edification for us, to encourage, to strengthen us, to learn more about you, to draw us closer to you. We pray, Lord, that this time would be fruitful. We pray for Pastor and Tiff, that the angels would go before them, to straighten their path, to guide them, to keep them safe. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 13, we're going to talk about the idea, the notion, uh, just how involved is God in setting up leaders. There's different, uh, different scriptures in the Bible that if you were just to read those, and I, I think somebody could come up right after me, and using certain verses you can be very persuasive of the exact opposite of what I'm the direction I'm going. I think, though, if you get a little bit larger, if you look at a few scriptures on either side of those and put it in context, you kind of have to come to one conclusion. Now, this has nothing to do with the fact that we just had an election uh, because this would probably sound like something I would say if I was really upset at something that had happened, and that's not the case either way. Read nothing into those last (laughs) 15 seconds whatsoever. But Romans chapter 13, this is, I should add this, this is also maybe just a, hopefully gives us always a better perspective on God. We're going to try to look at what he thinks about what the Bible says, his involvement, his intervention in the earth. And of course that has a lot to do with setting up powers, removing kings, those kind of verses that we're going to get into. If anyone is hot, feel free to turn that down back there, I'm plenty warm if it affects anybody else. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive of themselves damnation. I think it's very easy, and there are a decent number of us that Read those two verses and come to the conclusion that the Christian is to um, calmly submit to anything that government may put forth. Because this says that God puts the higher, or he is in charge of the higher powers. And that those higher powers are ordained of God. It goes further to say that if you resist those powers, who are you ultimately resisting? You're resisting God. But I do think that there is a little bit, uh, there's a great possibility for misunderstanding. First of all, it does not say, uh, or I will say what it does say. It says, it uses the word powers. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. In the Greek, that word, I'm no Greek genius, but looking at it in the Greek and the, the explanation in English, it has a lot more to do with the word authority. And an example would be, we have a sheriff in town. And if that sheriff walks into the gym at a high school basketball game, the reason people respect him is not because necessarily he is stronger than anyone else. I would imagine there's 15, 20 guys in the gym, and say the last hundred years, whoever has been sheriff, because I'm not thinking of one individual, but we don't elect the sheriff just because he's the most, he's the strongest, tallest, fastest guy in town. The reason people respect him is because of the authority that is invested in his badge. What is behind that? What is represented in his office? That explanation is a little bit of what's involved here with the word powers. That there is a delegated authority. That means people got together, recognized, we need some type of office where people are responsible to. Not a person. Not that they were born into a hereditary power structure which was what Europe was for so many centuries. But this word power, and for there is no power but of God, God ordained the idea of government. We won't turn there, but in the Gospels, Jesus once, before uh, he was out, outside of town, he, there was many people, thousands of people that had gathered around him, heard him speak for a long period of time. And as Jesus got in a boat to depart away from them, the Bible says that Jesus had compassion on him, in him because he looked at the people and it says he saw that they were as sheep that had no shepherd. You give it a little bit of an insight into the mind of God there. God does like authority. He does like um, a caretaker. He spoke often. He portrays himself as the good shepherd. Now, we know that because we live in a fallen world, there is the possibility of an evil shepherd or an evil authority. And that's the reason why we're going to discuss what we're doing tonight. We don't automatically make the the assumption that every person in government, no matter what level, mayor, governor, president, judge, we don't make the assumption that those people are infallible. In fact, America was built pretty much on the, the assumption of human nature, that human nature had better be watched. That's why we divided up power. We have checks and balances. Our entire system of government, which is built on a Christian culture, a Christian assumption, is that we recognize man has fallen. And if we don't have somebody watching him, and if we don't have somebody watching the person who's watching him, there's going to be trouble. Because evil is in the heart of man. And so because of that, as Americans, Christians, we should obviously, and even farther down that road, have the assumption that we don't look at government officials, kings, mayors, presidents, as something that we just follow blindly. Now this verse, so far what we've read, you could come to the conclusion, you could, in my opinion, misinterpret a little bit to think that no matter what government says, we follow. But let's keep reading here. And in verse 2, it said, if you resist the power, you're resisting God. And I don't want to resist God. I know you don't either. But verse 3 and 4 put some context and a differentiation on two camps. It says, for rulers, so that's another word for the power up above, or it's, at least it's identifying that. Rulers are not a terror to good works. See, these verses... They begin to differentiate between somebody who is doing the right thing and somebody who is doing the wrong thing. We would, in this discussion, say breaking the law. The ruler are not a terror to someone who is obeying the law or good works, but they are a terror to the evil, the person who is breaking the law. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power or the office holder? That verse is pointing out that we want... If we were to put into our dialect today, we want the criminal to have something in the back of his mind to think, if I break the law, there should be some terror inside that makes that person think, I don't want to pay the penalties for breaking that law. That's really what keeps somebody from breaking the law. Look at throughout all history. When Cain was pretty sure nobody was looking, he went after Abel. How many people in this town, really, if they honestly thought they could get away with going after their neighbor, If there was nobody else around, if they truly thought nobody would ever know, and if God would never know, they would have a a higher crime rate. It's the thought. It's this verse that says there's a terror, not to the person that obeys the law, but to the evil that breaks the law. Next verse. For he, the person in authority, he is a minister of God to thee for. Good. Again, it's differentiating between good and bad. But if thou do that which is evil. So he started off talking about he's a minister for good. Then it uses the word but. But contrasts. It goes in a different direction. But if you do that which is evil, if you break the law, then it says be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of of God a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil you see that it makes a clear distinction that the powers that be the authorities that God has ordained they are there for a purpose and that is that if somebody breaks the law they're supposed to, we want the fear of God in them that a righteous ruler is going to execute this verse says execute wrath, it even talks about he doesn't bear the sword in vain. In other words, we have vested authority in a public office for the purpose, not because I might have in my heart, I might want some vengeance on somebody. That's wrong. You put it in, the, in an office holder, who's, he's supposed to be impartial. He doesn't carry out a sentence on somebody because he hates that person. It's just his job. The authority is there in that badge. He's not supposed to, out of spite, out of hate, carry out a sentence on someone, or arrest somebody for that reason. He's not even supposed to look the other way because he likes somebody. It's neither of those. He is supposed to respect the law, carry out the law, because that's what the power has been set aside for. So this verse, it can be easily misunderstood. You can read those first two verses, have your cup of coffee and leave the Bible, and think, as a Christian, if the government says something, even if I don't like it, I'm just supposed to go along with it because I don't want to resist God. But the other two verses they make it clear that that bible or excuse me that office is supposed to be righteous. It is supposed to follow the laws of God because it makes a distinction between doing good and doing evil. It clearly sets a difference between the law going after somebody who is evil and not somebody who is doing right. If it does happen to get flipped over, then you have things like 1776. There is a fantastic phrase in the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson was so good about recognizing human nature. He starts out the Declaration by talking about mankind, that they do not revolt, they do not make sudden, massive changes for light, and transient causes. What's that mean? That means that we don't have a revolution because we want to raise the speed limit from 55 to 65. That's a small item. But if they happen to be putting people in ovens who are of a certain nationality, well, that would be something we would revolt over. Mankind does not throw off governments. They do not resort to change for light and transient causes. Only when things get to a point. And he went on to say that in the Declaration of Independence, he starts building a case against the King of Great Britain. How you have done such and such to us. You wouldn't let us change certain laws. You won't let us have courts in our jurisdiction. We'd have no representation here of parliaments in England. And he starts to build a case that this is, this is it's important and it's worth going to war over. Light and transient causes. Let's turn to Let's go to Hosea on our way back there. We'll start working back Hosea chapter 8. <clears throat> well, wait. Oh, we're going to save that. I need we need to set that up. Let's go all the way back to Exodus chapter 1 first. Let's look at a couple examples of what we just talked about. An example or two of somebody that The governing authority, are they doing right or are they doing wrong? You probably have a verse that's coming to mind and it's in Acts. I maybe should have read that where Peter is saying that he's talking to the people after they have been released from prison and the Jewish rulers told them, you guys stop preaching in this name. They even beat some of them and they turned them loose. And Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than obey men. And what he's saying is, yes, they are duly appointed leaders, but if what they promote is against God's law, we as people that follow God, we have something that's even higher. We follow God. Now, I'm going to have to stop about every fourth sentence to put a caveat out there in something like this. The Christian is the best citizen out there because of what we're talking about. The Christian recognizes what is lawful authority, And we are very good at obeying it. It's it's in our nature. It's in our culture. These verses that we're looking at, most other belief systems don't have stuff like this. We've been taught to be submissive to these kind of things, to be uh, submissive to authority. And that's a great thing. But it's also biblical to recognize when authority is not biblical. And again, that doesn't mean we take up arms against everything, no. But it does mean we get out there and speak, be persuasive. Try to reach your family members, your neighbor. You affect the world positively so that it doesn't have to come to arms against arms. The Christian should be the best influence on our nation because we have this book that's guiding us. Exodus chapter 1. And this is the story where the pharaohs, there's an, uh, the evil pharaoh that rises in Egypt, before this, Joseph is, has brought his family, his extended family, his brothers and father and their entire re- relation, their relatives, down into Goshen to Egypt to live. But th- that whole generation dies. Joseph and his brothers die off, and the Pharaoh who liked Joseph die off. And where we are picking up now, you have a Pharaoh who is commanding the midwives of the Israelites to drown the male Children, Because the Pharaoh doesn't want the slave population to be strong with a lot of male strength. They want them just to work subserviently, to do what they're told. And this is what that story is. It says, verse 17, But the midwives feared God. The previous verses is where the Pharaoh tells the midwives to kill the sons. But the midwives feared God, And did not, as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men, children, alive. So this is a good example of what we're talking about. The instituted authority. And if we had somebody standing next to me that took the opposite side, they would approach this story with the assumption that that person, that Pharaoh, was appointed of God. That people should then follow that person because God is the one that put that person in charge. I need to stop again and say something. I'm not making a blanket statement that says every person is in charge is put there by God, nor am I saying no one that is in power was ever not put there by God. It doesn't have to be either one. It can be a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. We could go through here and look through history where I think God clearly put some people in power. The Bible tells us in Isaiah that he rose Cyrus up When the children of Israel went into Babylon, and they were there for 70 years, Babylon just didn't wake up and decide one day, we're going to let them go. God raised up a Persian king named Cyrus, who invaded by a miracle, and overtook that city, Babylon. And God put it in his heart, the Bible says. And even prophesied it years before, before Cyrus was even born, and it named him. It said there's coming a guy, his name is Cyrus, and he's going to let the people go. There were probably people in Babylon thinking, well, who's named Cyrus? Well, there wasn't anybody, at least not the guy. He came from a foreign nation. He got in under the gate. He conquered that city without firing a shot, and he let the Israelites go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city. God clearly raised him up. As an American, I kind of look at George Washington's life, Abraham Lincoln's life, and see God's hand working on them. There are some miracles that got those men to the positions that they were. But that's not to say that every single president, every single mayor, every single judge was placed there by the sovereignty of God. If that's the case, why would you and I as Christians ever vote? I mean, if God really does decide exactly who it is, my vote's not going to stop God. My vote's not going to change God. You see where that goes? If you start down that road, If God's in control of absolutely everything, we have no responsibility whatsoever. Exodus chapter 1, the midwives fear God more than they feared the king. Now what's God's response to this? Verse 18, And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing? And have saved the men children alive, and the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as Egyptian women, they are lively, they are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. See, if if it really was that God wanted Pharaoh and everything that Pharaoh did was God's will. You would ha- then God's got a problem here. The scripture would have a problem here. It would seem to be conflicting. But as the way we're clearly reading it, I think it points out that if Pharaoh's doing something against God's will, it's perfectly fine. It is actually their duty of the midwives to disobey. It says that God dealt well with them. God blessed the midwives. Look at the next verse, verse 21. It came to pass because the midwives feared God that he made them houses. It kind of goes out of its way to point out that God blessed the midwives, that he was okay, more than okay. They were doing what he wanted them to do. Now there are verses in the Bible that will say that God put somebody in a kingship. And I do not dispute that, as as I have said. I think that the Bible clearly teaches that he puts some kings in charge in times when he wants their specific life to play out. So I think what this impresses upon the the Christian is is a certain worldview of how God looks down at the earth. Mankind is not, they're not robotic. You can see that from the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had a choice. God told them there's all these trees. You can have any one you want. This one right over here, don't touch it. They had a choice. God didn't make them choose that. They chose that. And you don't see in the Bible where that ever changed. You get down to Joshua's time, and Joshua tells the people that choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, he said. But he told the people, you don't want to follow God? Fine. Fine. You can go be with the Assyrians. You can go be with the Amorites, the Hittites, the Hivites. You can go with anybody. But if you're going to be in this camp, we're following the Lord. It's a choice. To the New Testament, none of that ever changes. I only point that out to look at it as a worldview. God does, however, have a certain plan from where Adam and Eve started to where Jesus comes back. There is a plan where he has put his hand into man's affairs to direct a few things. That's unquestionable. He needed to start over with Noah. And he talks to Noah, build a boat. There's something that's coming you need to be prepared for. His hand is clearly with Israel, keeping them safe so that they could bring the seed of Mary into the earth so that he could pay the penalty for sin. God's hand is clearly working on that through prophecy, through all these things to get where he wants to go. But none of that means... That God is in charge of everything that happens, much less setting up every single king, every governor, and every president. Just looked at that example. Let's go to Hosea now. If you kept a finger there, Hosea is right before, right after Daniel. Is that right? Hosea chapter 8. And this verse is quite clear. If you have if you are familiar with the Bible, if you've been raised in Bible stories you uh, Sunday schools, you've read a lot of the Old Testament, you know the history of Israel and that they were not a very faithful people to God for most of their history and because of that there was a God had a lot of problems they, their their relationship was strained in a lot of ways. This verse in Hosea chapter eight verse four gives a perspective from God's side on their leadership. I, Hosea 8.4, They, Israel, they have set up kings, but not by me. Now, that, that, that's pretty hard, I think, to, uh, to misunderstand or to have some other type of meaning that would lead you away from what God is really trying to say there. He's saying that they have had some kings that I had nothing to do with. Now that verse doesn't say all their kings were evil. It doesn't say all their kings were good. It does say say that they have set up kings. And if we were to put it in our language, maybe the word some. They have set up some kings that were not by me. I'm not trying to say something God isn't saying. Let's just think for a second. When it came time to have their first king, who was it? King Saul? And was that even God's... I mean, when the people come to the prophet and say, we want a king, we want to be like those other nations, we want to be ruled like them, the prophet was distraught. He knew God had said, and they had told the people, God doesn't even want you to have a king. You're not supposed to be like other nations. I am your leader, you follow me. But they wanted to be like other people. So their very first king, even though God had his prophet anoint him, the whole idea of them even having that office God didn't even want. So when they start having their kings, it's probably not going to stay righteous for all that long. Then we know that the prophet anointed David. And again, I don't want to make it sound like anointing him meant that no matter what, David was then going to be king. David couldn't just wake up every day at noon, expect somebody to just put him on a throne and carry him there. David had to go out before Goliath. David did a lot of things. You get after David and you have Solomon. That God wanted, he told David, I want Solomon to be king. You get after Solomon and then you get into some problems. Some terrible kings start to arise. Horribly wicked. And This is probably what some of this verse is talking about. They have set up kings, but not by me. Part of that verse could be that I didn't want any kings for them. Some of the meaning of that verse could be that, well, I did like some of their kings, but I didn't like others. Let's look at maybe one or two examples. Go to second okay, let's see. Go to First Kings. The Book of Kings. <clears throat> First Kings, chapter 16. There's a guy named Ahab. And you don't hear many people naming their children Ahab these days because it has a certain connotation. 1 Kings chapter 16, and it starts to describe Ahab in verse 29. And look at verse 31. He's talking about Ahab. It came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He's not doing too well. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, really not doing well, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. I think what that verse means is that this guy Ahab provoked God more than all the other previous kings combined. Now if we are to understand the opposing view that God sets up every single king, think that through logically. He has just put somebody in office that has what? Provoked him. Made him angry more than anybody else. It's just hard to accept that God sets up every single ruler. If you, if you start down this, you're going to eventually lead to things like Hitler and Stalin. And John is not saying, see, there are things that we know and there are things that we don't know. I readily admit things I don't know, I think. Maybe there was some overarching world event that came out of Hitler's reign that God used? I don't know. I'm not saying he did. I'm not saying he didn't. What I'm saying is I don't think we should go down the road that says we know for sure God put in Hitler because he's responsible for all kings. He sets up kings and he tears them down. I'm not saying that he, that there was some good in there. I am going on the other side and saying that that didn't happen. I don't think that God decided we got to put this guy in. The people, many times, lead lives, let their culture decay to such a point that they allow something like that to get in. And I think, as a worldview, when you look at the Bible, that man is responsible for these things. Let's take that view. If God did install Hitler, I think we should start writing books about how ungodly the United States was in fighting against him, Hitler. Another thing, if God does install every king, why do opposing kings fight each other? You know, when you start down that road, there's a lot of problems there. And I think you have to come back to the fact that there are times when God does intervene in human history. He, He wants to direct something. And sometimes he may be intervening because... Man has prayed and brought his hand into their world. You find examples of that in the Bible. That's all over in Israel's history. When they were oppressed and being uh, tyrannized, they would pray for a deliverer and God would raise up somebody like a Gideon, like a Samson, like a David. And yes, God was involved in that as a result of people praying. How do we look at this at this world? Um 1 Kings chapter 12, <clears throat> go back just a few pages, and 1 Kings chapter 12 is when Rehoboam, and I believe he was Solomon's son, yes, Solomon had quite a few kids, he had I think a thousand wives, the Bible said, wives, wives, I once heard somebody say, and I laughed all night, he said, you think you get got trouble, Bubba? Wives. This man, Rehoboam, was not a good king. He comes into office, and you could see in verse 4, it says, Thy father, that would be Solomon. Solomon made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the grievous service of thy father, and his heavy yoke which he put upon us lighter, and we will serve thee. The people, the Israelites are saying, Don't tax us as much as Solomon did to pay for all those wives, all those chariots, and all those houses. Make the burden lighter and we'll serve you to his son. You read through this story and this son, Rehoboam, goes to the old counselors of his father and they say, if I were you, I would listen. These people are going to revolt and you had better relax. Rehoboam kicked those men to the curb, brought in some friends of his that were his age, some young, inexperienced, quote, counselors, and they told him, if you want to tax them, double tax them. And that's what Rehoboam did. Look at verse... Thirteen. The king answered the people roughly and forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him and spake to them after the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. He doubles down on it. And if you skip down to verse 24. There is a civil war that is averted because the people are not going to take this. And you see in verse 24 that thus saith the Lord, he's talking to Rehoboam, he says, You shall not go up, nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. In other words, whose side is God on? The people who are saying, we've been taxed too much. So God did not take the side of the king that he would have supposedly installed there. That's all I'm pointing out. When you read the Bible and you get the, the, the whole picture, I think it always points out that God can be involved in a king coming. And that king doesn't necessarily even have to be a Christian. We have examples of God using Nebuchadnezzar. Because Israel needed to be punished The Bible says God raised up Nebuchadnezzar, brought him to take Israel off their land for 70 years because Israel was so defiant they wouldn't listen to him anymore. He used Nebuchadnezzar, who was not the nicest guy. He was a heathen. No covenant with God, and God used him. Now, we don't take that to mean that every leader God appoints. But we do know this, he does do it at times. He does do it. In this example, God is clearly with the people. In other words, everything that a king says, everything that a king does or wants to do, the people are not responsible to accept everything. And one of the reasons in the country that you live in, in America, the political tradition that we have of questioning authority that we actually call our leaders servants, is because our founding fathers were so well-versed in the Bible. These are the kind of things that they studied. They did. They studied man's relationship with government. These kind of stories where it actually says God was with the people, not the king. They don't make the assumption, and that's the first time. The first time in all of human history where the earth turned, and we are not going with the hereditary right of somebody to rule just because of their last name, or just because of who their parents were. And you think about it. 240 years. That's a small amount of time since Adam and Eve. That's how long we've been thinking this way. 1776. Why I revere that generation so much, the founding fathers, the way that they turned our entire culture and indeed, in the end, the whole world away from the acceptance of you get to rule just because you are so-and-so's son. It's ridiculous. It's a merit-based system we have. Um, let's go to Daniel. <clears throat> we'll start to wrap this up. Daniel has some fantastic examples of what we're talking about. Daniel chapter 1. We'll start there. Now, a little background. Daniel was of the generation of the people that we mentioned where Nebuchadnezzar came and removed the entire nation, well, most of them, off of the land and took them back to Babylon because God wanted the land to rest. He was so serious about his commandment to let the land rest every 7 years and they were they had none of it. God was so serious about that he pulled them off to force the land to have 70 years of rest. Daniel was one of the young men, one of the a very well thought of young man in that generation. And he's now back in Babylon and the Nebuchadnezzar has picked out some of the best men of the Israelites Daniel's one of them, and he's going to raise that person up or try to, uh, to teach him their ways so that he can be in charge of some things, somewhat maybe even of a liaison between Nebuchadnezzar and the Israelites. Anyway, he's raising up Daniel in the court. And in verse 5, chapter 1, "...the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, nourishing them three years." that at the end thereof they might stand before the king's stand or minister in his court to be part of his government. Verse 8, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Now if Daniel and the people that would take the opposing view of what we're presenting tonight, they would point to a lot of verses in Daniel that say that kings are appointed by God, that God appoints every king, every ruler, God puts them in authority. Daniel seemed to think that it was okay to disagree with the king. This king wanted him to eat from his table certain foods that Daniel, after reading his law, didn't think he was supposed to eat. And Daniel says, he purposed in his heart in verse 8, I'm not going to eat that. If he had the opposing view, he, was, he should be thinking, he's the king, God installed him, I have to do what he says. Now, in the next verse and a half, Daniel asks, I would like to not do this. So a person could point up and say, well, he didn't really go against him. I mean, he asked for permission. That's true, but it's also I stand by that he didn't have the, the, the mindset, I'm just supposed to do what the king says. You get into chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar dreams a dream. And Daniel has a, a, a hand in interpreting this dream. And you start to see Daniel where God works in his life and Nebuchadnezzar is starting to look at Daniel as this guy solves problems. There's something special about the God that he serves. And after Daniel solves a problem for Nebuchadnezzar, look at verse 20. And you see something here that we have to answer. It says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. This verse is one that would be heavily used by someone who would be opposing my point of view here. That it says right here that he removeth Kings and setteth up kings. The problem The point is I don't have a problem with that. I, I freely admit that he sets up kings and that he does remove kings. I have a problem with the word "all and the word "every" that is not in there, because it doesn't say that he setteth up all kings, that he is responsible for removing every king. He clearly does that, I think, throughout history. But to read that and say that he that every ruler was established by God, now we've got a problem. Because let's look at the next verse. If we're consistent with that thinking, look at verse 22. It's continuing to talk about God. It said, He revealeth the deep and secret things. Now he did reveal some deep and some secret things to Daniel. In this entire book, Daniel is revealing dreams that the kings had, and Daniel interprets them, God revealed deep things to Daniel. But are we to read that with the word all and every in it, that he revealeth every deep and every secret thing? If we're consistent, you'd have to say no. He does not. We don't have really even evidence in the Bible that where God reveals everything to us. It's actually kind of a little bit on the other side where the, the Bible says that the, the, the secret things belong to God, that it is the glory of kings to search them out, to try to find them. But it doesn't tell us that God just reveals everything to mankind, not at all. There, you have examples in the Bible where men prayed for understanding and God would tell them, that's not for you. We have examples where he does reveal some things. And the whole point is that we don't just throw it, the whole lump on one side and say, he sets up every king. He sets up every ruler, and he reveals every dark secret, every deep thing. No, he, he kind of does some, a little bit. He, a little bit here, a little bit there. Daniel was a guy that prayed and fasted. It's no wonder that Daniel received these things. This guy prayed to God when he knew his life was on the line. If you know the book of Daniel, one of the maybe the best book in the Bible, it's amazing if he just prayed to his God in open, they were going to throw him in, they they were going to kill him. And David went home and threw his windows open so everybody could see it, and he prayed to God. There's a lot of reasons why Daniel received these things. But God doesn't, we don't have evidence where God sets up every king, every ruler. Let's take this example. Before I forget, let's throw this in there. If you were living in 1942 in Germany, And if you know anything about history, you know what was going on in the 1930s and 40s in Germany. And a young Jewish boy came and knocked on your door, and as you opened the door, there were tears in this 8-year-old boy's eyes. And he was begging you for refuge. He wanted to hide in your attic. Now you know that the authorities that be, the powers that were ordained in Germany, what they wanted for that 8-year-old Jewish boy. They wanted to put him in an oven. And if you didn't resist the powers that be, if you made the assumption that, well, since they're in charge, that must mean that God put them there and God has a desire for their policies to take root, you would have been forced to report that kid to the police. And he would have been an oven by the end of the week. Now, you don't know anybody, and I don't know one person who would have done that. Or who would at least make the argument that you should do that. Maybe somebody would do that out of fear because they were afraid that their family would get thrown into prison and the ovens because they didn't follow along with the Nazi policy. But you don't know anybody and I don't know anybody who would advocate that it is morally right to report that young boy to the police. Everybody knows God's desire is for this young kid to survive. And you would take him in You would hide him, feed him, and protect him. When you start down this idea that, well, every single thing that is in authority, God put there, God put the office there. He likes order. Jesus had compassion on the people when it looked like they had no shepherd. God likes authority, but he likes righteous authority. And that's clearly in the Bible. You have these... This is the story we're going to end on. This Nebuchadnezzar, he gets very prideful. Go to chapter 4. There's a second dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And in this dream, <clears throat> there is a Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of this enormous tree. And the, the branches and the leaves and the fruit of it extend to all nations. <clears throat> And in this dream, this this tree begins to dry up. It's actually, there's a band put around the the base of it, and it's cut off right above the roots. And it's hewn down, and it is carried off, and that band sits there for seven years, and then after seven years, something begins to grow again. Daniel comes in, and through the blessing of God, he interprets this dream for Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells him, King, this dream is going to, be supported by your enemies, because that tree is you. You are going to be cut down. And you can see, um, let's look at, we're in chapter 4. When it is being described of this dream, look at verse 16. It's talking about after the stump begins to grow again. It says, let his heart be changed from man's, Let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. You'll see what that verse means more in just a little bit. Next verse. This matter is by the decree of the watchers, and the demand by the word of the holy ones, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. That's another verse that my opponents would read 40 times in an hour. Because it does, by itself, it does. I freely admit that by itself it does sound like God is in charge of instituting every single person, individual, in authority. Because it says, Whomsoever he will, he setteth up, even the basis of men. But what is this whole story talking about? This whole story is about a king who was the king. Even according to the, the, the book of Daniel, all the kings that came after Nebuchadnezzar were of a, in the kingdoms, were of a lesser, what's the word, uh, a lesser grandeur and glory. That Babylon was amazing. And the ones that came after were like this one dream. It went from gold to silver, brass, iron. That the gold was Nebuchadnezzar. And this Nebuchadnezzar, it got to him. It went to his head. And you can see, look at verse, 20, verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he Nebuchadnezzar walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. He's outside taking in this amazing kingdom. And the king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power? And for the honor of my majesty, while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from thee. And in that moment, God rent the kingdom, the authority from Nebuchadnezzar. Now see, it would sound like somebody, my opponent would say, see, God sets up kings and he's tearing him down. I agree, he is. Why is he doing it in this instance? Because he had something in his heart, and it happened the moment he goes out there and says, I have built all of this for myself. I'm the best. And he was, but he wasn't supposed to be overtaken in his own, his own pride. Look at the last verse in this chapter. After Nebuchadnezzar comes back to his own mind, after seven years pass of him Being out in the field, eating the grass with the oxen. This is what Nebuchadnezzar says. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. See, the whole story is not to show that God puts every king in every spot and tears down every king that has ever fallen. The whole point of this story is <clears throat> that God told, or brought Nebuchadnezzar down because even as Nebuchadnezzar identifies, I had pride. And I thought I was a little bit more than what I was supposed to think. And in doing that, the verses that we've read, God did use this example to show the world what? That at times, and if God desires, what will he do? He will reach into earth and he will put anybody he wants in charge and he will take anybody down that he wants. But that is not to say that every single king is appointed by God. And every time a king comes down, that it was God's desire. You see how you can go a little too far? You come to, if you go just a few steps down that road too far, you come to the wrong conclusions. Your worldview begins to change to where now you accept, you humbly accept evil. when we're not supposed to. The Bible's full of people that went against kings, that God got on their side, and they changed the world for good. When God comes to Gideon, and he convinces, he persuades Gideon that he's strong enough to deliver Israel. If it was just that God ordained that Gideon was supposed to do it, why would God have to send the angel to talk him into it? Why wouldn't God's will just take over and he'd grow six feet that day and put on 200 pounds and he'd be like Samson and he'd just go get rid of all those Midianites? He had a choice. And the angel had to convince him. Gideon first said, Are you kidding? I'm the smallest guy in the poorest clan of all of Israel. And you want me to go? And the, Israel, and the angel said, that's right. And he convinced him. He kept talking to him like he was a champion. And he even got to the point where, come here, I'll show you something. He took Gideon down to the camp of the Midianites. And he had him overhear a conversation at night. The, the Midianites were having a conversation in their tents that said, I had a dream last night that some guy named Gideon of the Israelites came and destroyed us all. Gideon didn't even know these people. He just overhearing them in the tent. And it got in his heart it persuaded him that God was on his side and he kicked him. He went after him, he rose up and he threw off that power. Hopefully there was no confusion in this. To me, it helps with a certain world view about how God looks at the earth, of the events that transpire, that God, he does jump in, without doubt. But it doesn't mean that he decides whether or not I brush my teeth in the morning. He's not in control of everything. We are free moral agents, and we have choice. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the things that contain in your word. We pray, Lord, that each one of us would be encouraged and strengthened. And We pray, Father, that you would give Pastor and Tiff wonderful meetings in Kenya. Bring them home safe in Jesus' name. Amen.